This is John 19, um, looking at the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and his burial. And um, it's interesting. I, I just love God. I, I love God. But sometimes he does things like, because we, we missed a week, you know, and, and so that kind of shifted our, our, our class around. But actually, it's like perfect now because he's, he's in the grave, and we're going to have Easter, and we're going to come back, and he's going to be risen. So it just, you know, that was the plan all along. So we love that stuff. I would want to encourage us today to look, to, to kind of push everything that we know about Easter, you know, out of our minds. I saw a marquee on the way in today. It says, silly rabbit, Easter's about Jesus. That was kind of a cute thing. But not even, not even Easter bunny, not even that stuff. The stuff that we've learned in church about the cross. Because I think we've kind of got caught up in some fallacies, okay? So we're going to look at some things, and I'm going to throw out some observations. And like everything else, you don't take it for word verbatim what I'm talking about. You weigh it, okay? You weigh it. But I also think as we get, as God's timeline unfolds, and we get closer and closer to the end times, I mean, for such a time as this, he's revealing scriptures in a whole other way. But this cross was not a failure, and it was not morbid, and it was not horrific. Maybe from the perspective of watching a human body beaten and abused, it was pretty horrific. But today, we're going to look at it at another angle. And John has been, through his gospel, pretty much presenting Jesus as in his majesty and in his glory. And this is why we have the four gospels, and there's a harmony here. Um, John's got a, a more, I don't know, uplifting, majestic, you know, he was the disciple that Jesus loved. He's just pulling in a different perspective for us. He's not focusing on the physical suffering. None of the Gospels really focus on the physical suffering. A lot of that's been medical doctors that have come in and says, what does it mean? Sweat drops of blood and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. That's not in John's Gospel. And even the wickedness of the crucifixion, Matthew touches on that, but John doesn't. We are going to focus on the, the magnificent Son of God and what he came to do first thing that we're going to take a look at and that just jumps out as out from the pages of scripture is the fulfillment of scriptures this is just not a historical narrative on this happened you know back in the day blah blah blah, blah when the crucifixion during the roman empire blah 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 but it's a rich account of jesus christ fulfilling all of the redemptive promises from the old testament That's what this is about. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 17 and 18. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. They had just beaten him, mocked him, and he's bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So it was the Romans' custom, because these are all criminals, that they want to make a statement to the, everyone in the, in the town or the countryside that you don't go against Roman law. 
And so when someone is crucified on a cross, that's a pretty bad crime that they've done. It was pretty, for those who are just pretty bad criminals. And three were assigned to be crucified that day, these two thieves or whatever, and um, um, Barabbas, he was supposed to be in the lineup also. And they have this march or this um, caravan or this procession, public procession, um, out to the place where they would crucify in a very public place by the road that is very well traveled to get the most out of the statement, you don't go against Roman rule, okay? So it was a public statement. The Romans had perfected crucifixion. It was a very painful, slow, humiliating way to die. But this was the way that God, the Father, had ordained God the Son to die. That was the price, the most horrific death Ever at that time, that was what, um, how Jesus was going to suffer. So he was submitting to the will of God with this. Now, when it says in here, the other two guys that are up there with them, John points it out twice. He says, with him were two others, one on either side, and Jesus in between. He's making pretty much a strong statement there. One on either side, and Jesus in between. What do we know about these two guys? One of them repented, right? One of them repented, and Jesus said, This day you will be with me in paradise. And the other one mocked him. It's a picture of Jesus bridging the gap between redeemed man and unredeemed man, isn't it? It's a picture of that. He's between them. One on either side. He's the only only thing that bridges the gap from us as sinners to to God, a holy a holy God, to live eternally with Him. And it's a picture of that on the cross, from redeemed man between redeemed man and lost man. So Paul, Paul, John makes a point of, of pointing that out: save penitent or a condemned impenitent. Bridging the gap. So Pilate gets involved here too in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So this inscription always was on the cross. It was always kind of hung there to say, this person did this crime. And this is what they're getting punished for. In Jesus' case, the crime was what? King of the Jews? And... um, They would wear this plaque out there, and then they'd hang it over the cross of them. And it's interesting that Pilate put on there Jesus of Nazareth, which is like the low place. You don't don't come from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? These elite Jews in in, um, Jerusalem here, they, they didn't have anything to do with the low lives of Nazareth. And here it was right there, the man, the human side of Christ, king of the Jews, king of the world, kind of both brought in together there. So the sign was pretty profound, and it was written in three languages. 
Many of the Jews read this inscription. So they were passing by. Everyone was passing by. And, 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 and they wanted to make sure that everyone who passed by could read it. So they put it in, in, uh, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Openly humiliating the Jewish leaders there. The Pharisees, king of the Jews, you know. And so they, they have a little problem with that. And they go to Pilate and they say, don't. Don't say that. Make it say that he says he's king of the Jews. And Pilate leaves it alone. I've written what I've written. So neither the Jewish leaders nor Pilate believed Jesus to be Israel's king. But he was mocking them um, because, you know, this is your king. You know, this pathetic human being on this cross, this is your king. So there was a lot of animosity between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. In reality, the description was accurate. So we have them walking out. We have them hanging in a public place. Many, many can read what's written there. And verse 23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, and one part for each soldier, also his tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, um, and see who it shall be. So the tunic was like a a um, a, a maybe like a, a poncho, a poncho, one sheet with a hole in the middle for the head, and it was just woven in one sheet like that. But the significant significance about this that was in one um, place was not just that it was predicted in scripture, fulfilling scripture. They divided my garments and cast lots for them. So the soldiers did all of these things to fulfill scripture. Um, but it's also in Exodus 28, 31 and 32, tells us that the high priest also wore a seamless garment. So this garment was something that the high priest would wear. And Jesus is our high priest. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He had nothing going out of this world. Nothing. He didn't own any real estate. He didn't have any uh, children, biological children. He didn't have any clothes. He didn't have a bank account. He had zippo, nothing. He made completely poor for our sake. So there he is, fulfilling scripture that had been written um, so long ago. But while he's hanging on that cross, and we talked last week on how severe the flogging, scourging, beating was, that they ripped into him. And if Satan had his day, he would have killed him right there. So it was like, I'm thinking probably any other human being could not possibly have survived that, except the Son of God, who hung on to the will to live because that wasn't his death. His death was going to be on the cross. His death wasn't going to happen until after he drank the dredges of the cup of wrath. And so he was pretty badly beaten. And I know when I don't feel good, I'm very (laughs) self-centered. And if you're married, your husband's even worse when they don't feel good. (laughs) Sorry, Ken. No. Um, 
But they do. They don't make good pay. And we just get very self, you know, we don't feel good. Just leave me alone and just kind of, you know, just kind of. But here's Christ hanging on the cross. And what does he do? In verse 25, who does he notice? But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took care, took her into his home. Simeon, when Jesus was an infant, back in Luke 2.35, when they brought Jesus to the temple as a newborn baby, yeah, baby, newborn, 10 days, to get circumcised, Simeon was there, and he looks at Mary, and he says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, predicting the pain and anguish that she was going to have being the mother of Mary. It's kind of unusual to us that he sees his mother, and he says, woman. Now, that was a um, polite, it wasn't um, degrading to call somebody woman it was a an honorable title but this was his mother but for all you mothers out there just think of what it would have done to mary if you heard the suffering of your child call you mother that would have dug in made the anguish even more worse wouldn't it so he distances a little bit just to save her the, you know, in his grace and his wisdom to, to soften it when he acknowledged her as woman. Um, excruciating pain, and yet he had the expression of selfless love and compassion. His mother was probably a widower by now. Um, We don't hear much about Joseph. And so Jesus, the eldest, was the one who was taking care of her legally by their laws. Um, So he assigns her to, to John to take care of. This cross and what's happening on this cross is the most powerful, glorifying, victorious thing that could ever happen from Christ's perspective, from what's going on with him. To hang in there beyond, past the ability of a physical body to have the strength to do something. And let me say this about that. We don't know if he fell carrying that cross. There's no place in any of the Gospels that say he fell. There's absolutely no place in any of the scriptures that says he fell three times. Okay? It's not in there. It says he went out carrying his cross, which he probably did. But I don't think he got very far before they realized he's not going to be able to do it. Okay, but it was not a picture of stumbling, crawling, uh, you know, this pathetic. It wasn't that. It was someone who could still walk upright. Because in one of the Gospels, it even says that he turned to some people and he says to them, don't be sorry for me, women. Be sorry for, you know, whatever. I can't remember the quote, whatever it is. Okay, so he's going to the cross in strength. Okay? It's a great display of his, his God's glory. And what is God's glory? His attributes. We see the attributes of long-suffering. And we see it of love here when he talks to his mother. Um, okay. 
So he's on the cross now. And after this, Jesus, verse 28, knowing that all was now finished. He knew, he's all-knowing, he has a supernatural power, and he's supernaturally in control of what's going on. He knew the work was finished at this point. He knew at this point that he had drunk the dredges of the wrath, the cup that God the Father had on him. And we don't even, we can't even comprehend what that would be like to have, I just, I don't even know how to explain that. I mean, I'm sure it goes far worse than the physical stuff that was going on up there. But to be able to to take the 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 emotional, spiritual punishment of sin of 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 doing something wrong. Yeah, you get beat for doing something wrong, flogged or whatever, so many times, and you get whatever. But the the to be not to not be sin, and yet to be able to receive the punishment of sin is something that we're never going to understand. You know what, ladies? And it's okay. It's okay because he did it. We don't have to understand that. Um, but it, I'm sure it was just beyond. Any kind of words. And he saved us from doing that. But we know this. When they go, when people who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and in the afterlife, they go to hell for eternity. In hell, there's never any restitution for sin. The guilt, the shame, the punishment, the anguish, knowing that you did all of these things wrong and there's never any relief for it. That's an ongoing thing. They never get rid of that. That's an emotional turmoil down there with that. So he has taken all that from us. And Jesus knew that it was finished. It was finished. There was a time before all of these things were accomplished. In Luke 12, 50, I have, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He had distress until it was accomplished what he was going to do on that cross. So there was a time before. And then there was a time during when it was accomplished. 2 Corinthians five twelve. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. That happened on the cross. And then there was a time after. After all these things were accomplished. Um, and then he prepared to yield his life and to die. But not until he had drunk that cup completely. So when he says it is finished... All of that redemption work was now done. Oh, I'm sure that was a sigh. And what does Jesus say? Verse 28b. He says, to fulfill the scripture again, I thirst. And I think I do thirst a little bit. Here, let me wet my whistle. Because we wet our whistle when we can project again. And it was a, it was a uh, just sour wine they gave him. Remember, he refused any of the drug stuff before. So it wasn't that. This was just something to wet his whistle. And why did he have to wet his whistle? In 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Here's the deal with this. It's not a pathetic, oh, it's finished. He got his lips that were probably so parched 
And his tongue was probably sticking to the top of his roof. Something that we have probably never experienced. Um, And he got it moist enough so he could say a victor's cry. It is finished. It was from a moment of strength. Get it out of your minds that, oh, it's finished. No, we're not there. He wanted to shout it out. It's finished. Yes, finished. The work he came to do was finished. And then with that, what does he do? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He didn't die. He laid his head, like laying his head down on a pillow. He didn't die from the crucifixion. He didn't die from the flogging. He died because he let his life go. Yes, that is strength. That's a victory. Yes. Okay, you're with me, I can tell. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Peaceful act like lying down on a pillow to sleep. Jesus did not hang his head in defeat. He bowed it in peace. All right, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and this is interesting too, in preparation they would prepare the the slaughtered lambs and stuff for Passover. Well, what do they do? And Jesus is the Lamb of God now, now, now died. So they took the bodies that would remain on the cross of the Sabbath. They didn't want to leave them up there. And then Pilate would have them go and bust the legs too because because what they would do is like they'd push up to breathe and then fall back down. And they took a long, long iron post and just busted their legs and, and they couldn't push up anymore to get a breath of air. And so the, they, apparently they had to kill the two on the sides, but when they came to Jesus, he had already died. Because who's in control? He is. Again, scripture being fulfilled, right? When they came to him, they saw that he was already dead. Not killed, but he had died. And so one of the soldiers took a, pierced his side with a sphere, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it, and it came out blood and water. Your commentary gets into a little bit of this, the sack around the heart or whatever. Um, but it is interesting that this happened, this phenomenon. It's interesting that the, these is like a random act from some anonymous Roman soldier um, just throws a sphere up to him. Um, why? Well, one idea is this. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, I mean, in the Old Testament, when they would have their priestly services and anoint thing and cleanse things, um, lots of times they would use, sometimes they would use water to cleanse, and sometimes they would use blood to cleanse. So it could be that those two elements, blood to cleanse away and the blood to, to pay, cover sins, are kind of in there together. I don't know, but it happened, and it fulfilled scripture. But here's another interesting thought. While Jesus was maybe asleep, you know, sometimes death and sleep are countermixed, we can take it back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam, remember, it wasn't good that he should be by himself, so he put him into a deep sleep, and what did he do? He took Eve out of his side, right? 
So, the first Adam, sleeping, Eve came out of his side. Here we have Christ, the second Adam, sleeping. And what comes out of the side of Christ? The church. Yes! You like that? Isn't that a beautiful picture? That we are born, because we're the bride of Christ, right? We're the bride of Christ. It takes on a whole new, it wasn't just, oh, we got stabbed in the side. No, we were were birthed, the church was birthed from that. Okay, verse 35. John says, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And it, John is an eyewitness here. And he takes it back to in John twenty thirty one, where he says, But these things he's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The fulfillment of scripture um, is, is Jesus also telling his disciples ahead of time. Many times he said, I'm telling you ahead of time so when it happens your faith will be stronger. John 14, 29 is one of those, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is why the scripture was fulfilled. And this is why John's saying, this, all these things happen, and I'm putting it down here. My testimony is true. I was there, and you're going to hear it, and so that you may believe that I'm telling you the truth. Verse 36, for those, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken, And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That second one there, well, the one is from Psalms 3420. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. And that was like the Passover lamb, Exodus 12. If the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. This is part of the preparation for the Passover lamb. In Exodus, these are exact fulfillments. When these things unfold, it shows us the providence and the guidance of God, and it leads us to believe things. There's still some things that are still in the future. If we look at Zechariah 10, uh, 12, 10. This thing's pulling my pants down, this... I need suspenders. <laughs> Am I embarrassing you? I need suspenders. It's just too heavy. Um, I love just talking to women. I can get away with more things just talking to women, can I? Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When they look on him whom they have pierced, this is future. When they look on him, when they see Jesus, this is talking about Israel. This is talking about Israel. When they look on him, when they recognize him, when they acknowledge who he is, when they contemplate him, They will mourn for him. This is the nation of Israel coming back. And then if we go over to 13.6 in Zechariah, we have this. 
And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So this prophecy is partially fulfilled and yet going to also be fulfilled future. And I'm going to wrap that thought up with one more thing here in Romans 11, 11 and 12. Paul says, so I ask, did they... The Israelites, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Think about that. That's, that's really rich. If the Jews' disbelief at the time in Jesus as being the Messiah, and there's a pretty cool things that are happening in Israel right now, if that means that their disbelief opened up the grafting in of Gentiles, praise God, because most of us in the room are Gentiles, and we are blessed because of that, just and that's from their failures, just think by their full inclusion when they look on him, when I read to you in Zechariah um, 12, they look at him and mourn for him when they acknowledge him as the Messiah. Just think how much more the blessings are going to bring on when we're all together in the body of Christ. It was a victory. The cross is displaying wonderful things about Christ, long-suffering and love with his mother, and, and, you know, that was just an example of love for us. The attributes here, we see our wisdom and power that he had up there. Okay, final little point here as we pull him down off the cross and, and get him buried. 38, we see more of the manifestation of supernatural control. And this is revealing who the deity of Christ. Um, because he exhibited power, divine power, over his death by controlling all the details. He's also showing divine power as he controls the circumstances of his burial after he's dead. Why did he do that? How could he do that? Well, we'll get there. So the criminals... Um, when you were a bad guy in Rome, you know, you usually didn't get buried. You just hung there and the birds came and, you know, scavengers. And it was probably a horrible sight to see something like that. Um, they left them on the cross. The vultures and everything came. It was the ultimate indignity. Um, again, a display for the people. Don't disobey Roman rule. The Jews, however, did not refuse anybody a burial. So they took them down. But they buried criminals at a separate location outside of Jerusalem. So here we see more prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 9. I have the American Standard Version here because it explains it a little bit better. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That's Isaiah talking about this. They made his grave with the wicked, the wicked, the criminals, and with a rich man, he was buried in his death. So how did Jesus, because he died a criminal death 
and should have gotten a criminal buried. How did he pull it off that he was able to get a rich man's burial? So Joseph from Arimathea is on the scene there. And they go and they ask Pilate for the body. I'm not going to read that for time's sake because it's all fresh in your minds right now. He was a rich man from Matthew. He was prominent in the Sahedron. He was a good and righteous man. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a disciple of Jesus, although he was one that was in secret like Nicodemus because out of fear of the, of the Jews. But at this point in time, we can see that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, their faith has grown to the point where they're going to take a risk and be courageous and come out there boldly and say, we're, we're going to take his body down. And so they took his body down. And Mark and Luke both record that Joseph himself took the body down and removed all this bloody, dirty body of Jesus, the iron spikes and taking it all down. I'm sure it was very emotionally difficult John points out the amount of spices. Well, that's because 75 pounds of spices used to anoint a body of a king or a wealthy person. That's why that was there. And another cool thing, they brought him to a garden tomb, right? The garden, back to the garden, right? Where Adam and Eve were, where he slept and whatever. This happened in the garden. Time began in a garden. Time is, you know, this culmination of the, 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 the uh, pinnacle of, of history, redemptive, changing everything is in a, is in a garden. And we're going to end up in a garden too, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. All us plant people loving, you know, if you're not a plant people, you will be there. Um, <laughs> because everyone will have a green thumb, right? Right, Joyce? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, but only John's the one who relates that it was in a garden. John's deep-seeing eye, seeing the harmony of the garden and the cross. I have a quote from Tasker. The fall of the first Adam took place in a garden, and it was in a garden that the second Adam redeemed mankind from the consequences of Adam's transgressions. What a beautiful pull around. We're so thankful that John was able to pull all this stuff in with, by the Spirit of, of God. And it was a new tomb. Because if it wasn't a new tomb, then they could have said, well, Jesus' body brushed up against some old prophets and, you know, some of the wooey-wooeys, and he got alive. This was a new tomb. They would have thought of anything to, to make them not believe it. So the cross was not a horrible thing. The cross was truly a great display of God's glory, his attributes made known. What attributes are we finding here? Long-suffering, love, wisdom, power, unchanging, because what was written about long ago followed through, unchanging and faithful. So many things about Jesus Christ and his divinity are displayed on the cross. God, thank you so, so, so much. Thank you for opening up scripture that we can see in joy and victory what this was. Amen.